1: If you have kids or pets, you know stains and odors in your carpet and upholstery are inevitable. But the experts at ChemDry can help. ChemDry removes odors and stubborn stains by sending millions of carbonating bubbles deep within your carpet. ChemDry lifts dirt, urine, and stains to the surface to then be extracted away, giving you a cleaner and healthier home. Call 1 800 ChemDry or visit ChemDry.com to connect with your local ChemDry and learn about special offers in your area. That's 1 800 ChemDry or visit ChemDry.com today.
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Unspooled, the podcast where we explore the greatest films of all time, according to some, to see if they truly are that great or just remembered that way. This is a show that we always host with me and Paul Shear. I am Amy Nicholson. I'm a film critic. I write about movies for The New York Times. Paul, brilliant writer, brilliant comedian, currently on tour. So he is not here in the studio right now. We can all pour out a little bit of coffee for Paul. However, now that that morning is over, we do miss you, Paul. Come back soon. I have very exciting news. Uh, This week, we are talking about the biggest movie sensation of the summer with my biggest dream podcast guest of all time, Jamie Loftus. She is my favorite podcaster. She did the shows My Year in Mensa, Lolita Podcast. At Cast on Kathy. She also does the show The Bechtel Cast, which I got to be on. A a year ago, we talked about one of my deep, deep, deep personal favorite movies, Don't Tell Mom, The Babysitter is Dead. And Jamie Loftus is now an author. She wrote a book called Raw Dog, The Naked Truth About Hot Dogs. I don't know if anybody on here has seen my Twitter bio, but it very much says that I also deeply love hot dogs. So I've read Raw Dog, adore Raw Dog. I spent years of my life living on 7 Eleven hot dogs and could tell you exactly which 7 Elevens in LA. Have the pump bottle mustard versus the packets of mustard. Pump bottle is so far superior. I can never open a packet of mustard. It's a real crisis. But you know, I don't even need to talk about it anymore because we have Jamie Loftus as a hot dog expert, and now Jamie Loftus as our very special guest talking about Barbenheimer. Okay, Jamie, I'm just gonna ask a foundational Barbenheimer question right yes. up at the top. Did you Barbenheimer together in one weekend, or did you space out your explosions?
1: I've done it twice now. I did it the first time I Barbenheimered, but I did Oppenheimer then, Barbie, on the day it came out in Boston. No Break, which I think colored my opinion of both movies significantly. <laughs> did it all the way through the first time, and then I saw them both separately afterwards. So, like, Mommy and Daddy got divorced. Exactly. I went to visit... Mommy and I had a a better time and I went to visit daddy and I had a worse time, which also feels very divorce coded
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now why in the initial period did you decide to see Oppenheimer first and then Barbie?
1: It just I don't like to leave somewhere bummed out That's basically it. I just wanted to like hedge my bets And, um, leave on what I was assuming would be like a pretty fun, optimistic note versus one of history's saddest days. (laughs) Oh, no, but what does it say about me that I cried at Barbie, but I didn't cry at (laughs) (laughs) Hoppy Nothing. I think that that was also true of my experience both times. I'm so, wait, wait, what order did you, did you do the thing? I was not
0: able to do the thing because I had to see them for work. But I had this like idea that I just wanted to throw at you right away because you are the hot dog queen. I was like, well, I got to think about like connections between Barbie and hot dogs. I remember this quote from your book uh, when you're describing the hot dog and you describe the hot dog as you know the thing you love from the time you start to form memories. She is not mm. American at all and the most American girl you could meet. All marketing, no substance. And I thought, Whoa. that is a line that could go both ways, baby.
1: That's a Barbie, too. That's wild. That that makes total sense. I was looking into, of course, if there had been Hot Dog Barbie, which the answer is like kind of, Ken ran a hot dog stand briefly in the 80s that Barbie could go to, and he would give her 7-Up and hot dogs. So I'm trying to eBay one of those. That's so fascinating. Yeah, that they're both these... Um, artificial products that people get angry with every so often. (laughs) They have a lot in common.
0: (laughs) I mean, I have heard that there's this like subtextual grilling Ken scandal where like one of his first accessories as a young Ken was like, he was grilling a hot dog on a stick and you can buy it. And there's like the hot dog and there's like little holes pierced through it in that it was seen as kind of subtextual referencing of the fact that Ken doesn't have a penis penis. Even though Ruth Handler actually kind of wanted him to have more of a penis, like the men who were working at Mattel at the time were very uncomfortable with Ken having a a bulge. (laughs) One of the men at the office was like, he's absolutely not going to have a bulge, and if he must have a bulge, we're going to paint underwear on top of the bulge so that you can't really see what the bulge is a reference to. And Mm -hmm. one of the women in the office was like, have you never met a little girl? Because a little girl's just going to see that swimsuit and then spend months scratching away the paint, <laughs> you know, months, and you're just yeah. making it worse. So give mm-hmm. him a tiny
1: bulge. So. I had like one Ken maybe ever, and I think he had painted on something. It wasn't just smooth. My Disney boy dolls were smooth. Prince Completely Eric, smooth. Mister Smooth, nothing. I, 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 it challenges everything that I thought growing up. Because when, like, when I got older, I'm like, oh no, it's. It's good that they don't tell kids. You're like, but why? But why? It's so bizarre. Did you? Were you a big Barbie person when you were growing up?
0: I was not allowed to have Barbies growing up for most of my childhood because my mom was like a educational psychologist. So I could have gender neutral toys. I could mm-hmm. have Legos. She eventually let me have a lot of my little ponies. And nice. then my aunts who were like, she's being crazy – Funneled Barbie's at me, anyways. And so I did get definitely fucked up by Barbie in that same
1: way of being like, will I ever have legs so long? And the, you know, <laughs> no, absolutely not. That's impossible. <laughs> it just feels inevitable. I know, and it's like I under like you're I'm like it, your mom is coming from a good place. I have like my my closest friend is attempting to raise her kid uh free of Disney princesses and I think her kid is like four and she's like, I'm giving up. I'm giving up. It's not possible. Like, is it better to have just something like the Barbie movie that offers a better version of that versus attempting to shield kids from it their whole lives? Because eventually I feel like Kid FOMO is so uniquely hard to deal with if you're not allowed to, I don't know. My Barbie in that case would have been Adam Sandler. I was not allowed to watch his movies. You were
0: not allowed to watch Adam Sandler movies?
1: No. And there's still, I still haven't seen really any of the big ones at all. And Jim Carrey. Like really any of the big 90s comedy movies my mom just did not like and we couldn't see. Did she think they were offensive
0: or did she think that they were
1: stupid? I think both. I don't know. I watched like old Pee Wee's Playhouse. For some reason, that was like the rules were very vague. I'm very glad that I had the Pee Wee tapes because there really wasn't very much for me outside of cartoons and Pee Wee. But to that idea of like things that become
0: iconic when you're a kid, I think you're absolutely right about that. Like, you know, I picture even just like that little vacuum on a stick that was, like, little balls inside of a dome. And when you, like, rolled it Ooh, back and yeah. forth, the little balls popped up and down and how much I deeply wanted one of those. <laughs> but but there almost, I think, was no totemic thing as a child to me as big as a Barbie, you know, and everything oh. that a Barbie represented and everything that I, like, resented Barbie for and was mad at Barbie for. And, like, Barbie definitely made me feel bad about myself. For but sure. But also... Also, look at the clothes. And so, like, all of the emotions that I feel about Barbie feel so deep in a way that probably requires therapy. And it astonished me to see that pretty much all of them were reflected in this movie because I was not expecting Mm -hmm. that at all.
1: It's weird. There's parts of this movie that did not work for me, but I really like the experience of going to see this movie. It's so fun. And now that I've seen it three times, I feel like I can say with certainty that like the same things pop every single time and like things that seem so specific, but apparently were extremely universal. The, I mean, even though it's like, you don't like, really get very much of her, but the, um, Sasha character loved her and I feel like that was very much my I I remember specifically like getting to a point where my I made my mom cry when I was like 10 or 11 because I was like big bird is stupid <laughs> and she's like no and I was like and Barbie's are stupid. And she was like, no. Um, And I just (laughs) like, Adam Sandler is stupid. And she's like, yes, (laughs) yes. (laughs) But like, I reached a point and then I remember, I got, I must have been in like middle school and I almost certainly heard that someone else had done this and then done it myself. But like, someone wrote to the Barbie company to say that Barbies made them feel horrible about themselves. And I like, industrious 12-year-old was like, me too. I too think this is bad for the world. And, and I wouldn't have even considered myself a really big Barbie fan. I like dolls. I have too many dolls in my house, which is probably another reason why I'm like, yeah, this movie works for me. You know, I, I understand the criticism around it being an advertisement, but uh, I bought two Ken dolls. So what are you going to do? Did you check for Bulge? It's waiting at my house. I'm so (laughs) curious if they're going to give Gosling bulge. We'll see.
0: I mean, because don't they let them negotiate a little bit their likeness and be like, it doesn't look like me. It does look like me and fine tune it a little bit. I thought that happened with dolls. I wonder if you get
1: crotch negotiation. To get crotch negotiation. (laughs)
0: If it happens to us, I think we should put that in our contract. Ooh, that would be
1: so great because the faces always look a little freaky when it's a real person. So you might as well just get the bulge.
0: But so, like, when this movie started, you know, really not knowing what it was going to be, having tons of thoughts about, like, what it might have been for years. Because, like, you know, Diablo Cody talking about, like, her version forever. I remember interviewing her, like, I don't know, nine years ago. And her talking about, like, how hard it was to make a Barbie movie. And me being like, what could a Barbie movie with her be? And then, like, the Mm -hmm. Amy Schumer version of a Barbie movie that we never saw. And what would that Barbie have been like? And there's been these imaginary Barbies kind of in my head forever. And I had a million ideas of what I expected to see, but what I did not expect to see when I sat down was like a black screen and white font and like Ingmar Bergman howling winds of despair and the Barbie font just there. Like I'm about to see something Swedish. And as soon as that card came up, I just started howling quietly, quietly, politely howling.
1: (laughs) Respectfully howling.
0: (laughs) Respectfully howling.
1: I don't know. I love that you can like know what it, referencing in a lot of moments or not and it's still fun that feels so I don't know impossible in some ways I just yeah I didn't know that there was going to be an Amy Schumer version of this movie I very um, strongly remember that there was going to be a Diablo Cody version and I would still love to see what her version would have been me too
0: and it's hard to imagine this movie existing before Margot Robbie could have played Barbie in a way, yeah. because I don't know who else could have been that blonde Barbie the way that Margot Robbie can. I, every so often, I just sort of get like hit upside the head with the fact that like, how is it possible that one of our most like stunning actresses is also one of our most talented actresses? And she's so versatile. Yeah. And it's just like to be alive in the
1: Margot Robbie era has been a thrill. I really. Oh, I'm so glad that you feel that way. I really love her. <laughs> At this point, there's plenty of evidence that she's, like, a really good comic actor, too. But she's so funny and so good. And I think the movie I've, I saw in theaters most times was um, I, Tanya. Like, I saw it every day for a while. I mean, that was also, like, a moment in my life. It wasn't all I, Tanya. It was partially, like, depression. <laughs> but, I lo- <laughs> like, she's an all-timer. She's incredible.
0: Wait, I had this weird conversation with my boyfriend the other day where we were fighting over... Who has more name recognition? And it was like Tanya Harding, Ooh. and I'm gonna say Ariaster, but it wasn't Ariaster. But I think it was like <laughs> it was in the key
1: of Ariaster.
0: And like my boyfriend was insisting that the filmmaker had more name recognition in America, and I was like, no. it's absolutely, Tanya Harding.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that there's maybe I don't even know if there's a city in America where Ariaster's is <laughs> taking it. I think he would agree with that. I there used to be. Uh, house in my neighborhood that they just like for some reason never took their easter decorations out and they had this banner in the front yard that said happy easter and then after a couple months it basically just said ari Aster.
0: (laughs) i mean i can kind of see it i can see like the easter to midsummer through line
1: some of the yeah some of the letters fell off some of them kind of blended when it rained (laughs) and it just looked like there was a huge sign in front of their house that said ari Aster. But I think what,
0: like, really stood out for me here about Margot Robbie is, like, you just get this idea that she's this woman of, like, a thousand different smiles, right? And each Mm -hmm. smile can mean something a little different in that she's capable of, like, a giant smile that masks a deep inner sadness and confusion and turmoil and trying not to cry. And, like, you could, I think, paint the Mona Lisa with, like, the different smiles that she has.
1: Hmm. I was uh, when on on the third view when I was really like I can pay attention to very granular stuff now. Um, it really I like it must be so fun to know that you're writing for her because she can kind of do anything without dialogue and like there's so many especially at the beginning of the movie when she's like it. It reminds me of the. Squidward episode of SpongeBob, where he moves to the colony of Squidwards and then realizes that a perfect day every day is not sustainable. But like you just see, she just communicates, like she doesn't even really need to say anything for you to realize that she's kind of that something's changed and she's kind of over it. And it's just incredible. Well, yeah. And I don't think she's been getting
0: enough props for being the producer of the film. You know, I think that she's the person who got Greta Gerwig on board. It was like she was doing it and she brought Gerwig and she probably the chance to get to work with like the Robbie of a Thousand Smiles is maybe one of the things that I'm guessing made Gerwig feel like this won't be a disaster. This won't be a giant (laughs) bomb hitting the theaters if I have Margot Robbie here.
1: Yeah, she's been producing her own stuff since I, Tanya*, right? Or that's I think think so. That's patient zero for that. And I'm glad her performance is, like, getting a lot of attention. And I also wish it were getting more attention. I don't know. In terms of, like, how much I've seen, like, Ryan Gosling's performance praised. And it's amazing. But I'm just like, but it can't exist without Margot Robbie. She's so, like, she holds everything together. I just, yeah, I think she's incredible. I'm so curious, like, if, I hope in 20 years, like, Greta Gerwig will be contractually allowed to talk about what kind of notes you would get when you're working on a project of this scale. I guess I'm curious about the same thing with Marvel movies, but I just don't care in the same way. <laughs> and I also, like, don't know the background for it. But Barbie, I'm like, ooh, I'm locked in. Because it seems like, at least on the surface, that she and Noah Baumbach had so much freedom in what they were allowed to do. But it also, there were parts where I was like, hmm, I would be so surprised if they were like, we got to do this, you know, like I just, I'm so curious on how a script like this comes together and gets approved by a huge company and still feels so unique to them.
0: Like I've heard tales of an unsung producer who protected them from notes as best he could. Mm. You like who's sort of like, I will dive in between all of these notes and make sure that these auteurs get to do what they can. But yeah, like one of the only things I think they've talked about is just that Mattel was nervous about calling Robbie's Barbie stereotypical Barbie, and they were pushing for, I think, original Barbie. And, and Gerwig was really like, no, stereotypical is the point, you know?
1: Oh, I'm so glad that they got to do that. Yeah, because I, I, it's it sounds a little funky the first time you hear it, but then, like, I don't know. Yeah, as I was watching it in future viewings, I was like, what other word could you use that would get across what she's trying to say and it does feel like the right word and i feel yeah like using original barbie also feels like i don't know like it excludes a lot of like the others are deviants
0: or something right
1: wait okay the thing that and I know that there was I read about this I didn't get too deep into it but that there was supposed to be a fart opera question mark with this did you see that oh my god I thought
0: Bart Simpson I thought you meant Bart Simpson was gonna show up (laughs) and start singing
1: (laughs) (laughs) out of what hole? they're they're boldless I don't know I I saw a He's floating around. I don't even think I read the whole thing, so I might be misrepresenting it. But that um, there was some sort of cut musical number that was like a fart opera that tested really poorly. And then they pulled it out from the movie, which may have been the right decision. I just the thing that stuck out to me the first time I saw the movie that I haven't seen people be frustrated with. I love the Ken number towards the end of the movie. It's so amazing. Like, it looks incredible. It's so funny. And I just wish that the Barbies got their version of that. Like, the Kens get to learn their lesson in this really dynamic, musical, fun way. And the Barbies uh, have to give, like, stump speeches and cry. (laughs) And, like, it's. I think it's just, like, my personal thing. But I'm like, why can't they learn in a silly way why do they have to like sociology 101 at each other i don't even like i like what they're saying i cried at the damn speech everyone cries at the speech it's fun but i also just wanted them to be able to dance and sing um as much as the kens got to dance and sing
0: you know i'm not gonna disagree with you at all on that honestly because it's it's sort of in that section where the kens are so good and they're so funny and it is basically the ken movie where right when things start to get resolved and there's a crowd scene and then Mm -hmm. Barbie kind of steps out almost like Dorothy at the end of the wizard of Oz. And I have that moment Mm -hmm. every time I've seen it, which is just twice now where I'm like, Oh right. This is her movie. And I forget.
1: Right. And then she comes out of the back and they're like, Oh, but what are we going to do about Barbie? And that's why I was like, I wish I could see like what Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach's perfect version of this movie is versus like what, Mattel would allow to happen because I it felt like, like Will Ferrell's great. Every, all the guys in that scene are great but that felt so extraneous and weird that they kept showing up and that they got to go to Barbie Land. I was like, they shouldn't get to go to Barbie Land. What the hell? I should get to go to Barbie Land. Uh, but <laughs> when they show up at the end you're like, whoa. Oh yeah, these guys are in the movie and for some reason they have to be a part of the resolution because Margot Robbie's Barbie is so good. All of the Barbies, like That she's surrounded by are some of the like funniest like character actors on the planet, and they don't get to do the song and the dance. They get they get to be funny, but I just I guess I just like wish that they could have done more.
0: No, it's true, and it is also you're right. It's weird when kind of Will Ferrell shows up, and you're like, it took them that long to get here. What's happening? And the only thing I actually really like about that bit is uh, that. The Barbies are explaining the whole thing. They're like, she's yeah. not in love with Ken. Ken's over here. Let's do this. We're breaking up. He's watching this unfold. And then he's like, Barbie loves Ken. And you just are aware that it doesn't matter how many times you repeat a thing. There's just people who aren't going to get it.
1: Mm-hmm. I think about it with like, this is a very different example, but like how brands on Twitter and Instagram have these like youthful self deprecating personalities now and it's like you can get into an argument with Fritos or fucking whatever <laughs> um, or you can like send a picture of your boobs to the Kool-Aid man whatever <laughs> for example things i probably people who've long wanted to do that it feels like some sort of like very very furthest extent of that where it's like I think that there is a uh, there's like an advantage as a like big business to like making yourself seem open to like some kind of criticism or like being jokey about yourself it's like what Elon Musk is always failing to do yeah what he thinks he's doing (laughs) yeah yeah but this movie is actually doing it I don't know. I sort of felt myself like going for it the first time. And then the next two times, I was like, no, Jamie, you're an adult. You don't have to love the the CEO part, even though, I mean, it's like so funny. It's, it works. <laughs> yeah. I
0: forget what conservative columnist was like. I ran the numbers and actually almost half of the CEOs at Mattel are women or something. It's, it's, there's five of them and only seven men. Which they basically make a joke about. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, there's like this kind of trend that I think, I think like it was maybe the Chippendales Rescue Rangers movie that also did this, where it's like the insult to the corporation is coming from within the house. The corporation's like, we'll make fun of us. That way you don't have to. You can just love us because we're making fun of us. So it's all fine.
1: We get it. We're the worst. And then then you're still giving them money. Yeah. I thought about that. I think Disney, like does that so much now that it's like more obviously disingenuous than it feels in this movie because you've I guess you've like Mattel has never attempted this before really but with like I think about like Wreck-It Ralph 2 and the way that they're like princesses right they suck but here they are and (laughs) you're like all right
0: what are you what are you doing but it is almost like those backflips the way that Rob Thomas from Matchbox 20 is doing where he's like, Push is not a misogynist song. Push was written about me. I was getting abused by a girlfriend. Push is about me being pushed around. Mm -hmm. And you're like, really? Like, really? Really? Is that true? I liked that scene
1: a lot. (laughs) The fact that Matchbox 20 got a fat check this year. Who could have seen it coming? And the Indigo Girls. And I was realizing... I have this
0: theory, I don't know if I'm right, that like the use of the Indigo's Girl song of all songs is almost kind of like a declarative spoiler of what's going to happen in the movie because the lyrics Ooh. are, I went to the doctor, which mm-hmm. is the ending of the film. She goes to the gynecologist. True. I went to the mountains to meet that could mm-hmm. represent weird Barbie's mansion. Yes. I looked to the children. <gasps> she gets Sasha. fooled. From Sasha. And I drank from the fountains. She gets like that glass of water at the CEO office and just splashes on her face. And she like cannot drink water. And I'm like, maybe that Whoa. maybe I'm going insane. But maybe I'm not. Maybe. this. I is believe life. it. You sound like a Swifty. <laughs> you know, like all the numbers are adding up. <laughs> so I went on kind of though a deep dive about a little element of the film that I want to really get into with you, which okay. is Midge. Pregnant Midge. Yes. So, Pregnant Midge in lore. Definitely a thing. They sold Pregnant Midge dolls in, like, 2003. Mm -hmm. And, yes, they pulled them from, like, Walmart because, like, Walmart said that customers complained. And other toy stores, like, KB Toy Stores, were like, nobody is complaining here. But Walmart was like, well, they're complaining here. So, we have to get rid of them because, like, people were saying that Pregnant Midge was teaching people that, like, teen premarital sex is cool or something. That it's, like, great to be a parent or whatever. Um, But what the lore is about pregnant Midge, you know, this never gets brought up in the film. Who knocked Midge up?
1: Isn't it canonically
0: Alan? Yes. Yes. I've
1: been watching a lot of doll YouTube because they got
0: like married in doll world, right? They got married. Alan is like ditching his pregnant wife, basically. Another Michael Sarah character left without a scratch. (laughs) Yeah. I pulled some commercials that I kind of want to watch with you. From okay. like this era of like two thousand three, Midge and Allen. Together we can be happy family. Be Midge, Allen, Brian, to
1: so baby next door. Happy family with room for one more. Doctor Bobby on car. It's a girl changing table. Each sold separately. That unlocked something. I like definitely saw that commercial <laughs> between episodes of SpongeBob. Holy cow. Yeah, Dr. and Bobby it flat on it's like, call.
0: But yeah, Alan credited his dad to like their young child, Ryan, their future like unborn daughter. And mm-hmm. when I look at Midge in this, I'm like, all right, I've seen happier dolls than Midge. But then, like, as the Happy Family saga continues. I think it gets kind of dark. They gave the Happy Family a dream home, but it's not okay. like some cool pink castle that's like... Yeah, it's kind of beige. Yeah, like, right? Describe what you're seeing right now.
1: I guess that it kind of looks... I mean, it It looks like an apartment building, but I'm guessing Alan and Midge own the whole building and are also basically as tall as the building. Beige. You're very right. Beige.
0: And canonically in France, in the French commercials of Happy Family, they have a Volvo, and the Volvo was blue. Oh. Like, they're just straight up normie but then this house to me feels like a hell house i want you to watch this cartoon
1: (laughs) (laughs) welcome to the new happy family sounds like home it's so big and it makes over a hundred sounds where's ryan mom's keeping
0: busy and so is ryan anybody want sandwiches
1: i do (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> happy family, happy family, family. What is her kid <laughs> taking so many hot shits at the Happy family house. <laughs> I did not expect a third flush.
0: Wow. And Mitch is just like holding a baby who's crying and just crying and just crying, <laughs> and, just crying. and the house is just awful of to me like absolute stress sounds, ringing phones and microwaves dinging. And Mitch is just like, fuck my life in
1: essence and it really does not get better for midge that's gnarly oh my god this doesn't work for like i what i have no issue with a pregnant doll but this like dystopian future for midge it feels like why i think that every time i hear in the barbie movie america ferreira's idea for a barbie i'm like no that sucks uh that sucks it's not aspirational in any way and no one wants that. You want something that feels aspirational or why would you? Ugh, who is buying a beige house? I mean, I think
0: I've relieved it in that part where America for hours is like, and here's my dream Barbie that the company is not immediately be like, yes. And now you can be a board of executive member because that idea was so great. Because like, <laughs> No, no, nobody wants that. Because if you make that Barbie, it's going to look like the very last ad that I had to pull to watch. Welcome to the Happy Family Real Sounds house. Listen and you'll see. Smaller. The dishwasher washing. Cartoons on TV. Uh-oh, baby's all wet. Will the Happy Family, Ryan, <laughs> ever get oh my to bed? God. Happy Family Real Sounds house makes lots of sounds. Dolls sold separately. Batteries not included.
1: He's at it again. <laughs> what
0: is going on with ryan Midge is in hell like to get to see what barbie is doing going to space and being like a cool ass tiger pant wearing like filmmaker or whatever and midge is just rocking this crying baby who's like peeing and she can't get it to go to sleep
1: it's just mean that yeah i feel like it's like you don't hear it in these commercials like you just hear what midge has to deal with you don't hear what she can do like they're like baby wet and then you're like well i guess that's midge's problem ryan's shoving his head down the toilet again i'm assuming that's also <laughs> midge's pr- also the house got much smaller in that one too they're kind of down on their luck exactly i think well their water bills are really high for one yeah, thing ryan's <laughs> flushing them out of house and home. i do like the like early alan like queer reclaiming of Alan, of Ken's buddy who shares all his clothes. That's that's my Alan. I don't like <laughs> husband slowly <laughs> turning his wife's life to dust as they move <laughs> into tinier and tinier homes. Um, and he doesn't connect with his son to the point where his son's father is a toilet. Let me get in your car and we're driving away. Can we please get out of Barbie land? Please? So, so brutal for Midge too, like as her life grows smaller that she has to see the woman who delivered her baby eventually become president like (laughs) that cannot feel great i mean you just actually took the dolls that the barbie movie is
0: making fun of at the first place where all you get to do is play act taking care of things right and it's just reenacting that it's like we made barbie so you could do more than that and like the barbie original dream home didn't have a kitchen because it was like Barbie just goes out every night and like has dinner with like men who buy her martinis. Like she doesn't need to cook. She doesn't need a stove.
1: That's a fun uh, Barbie Oppenheimer overlap. Their houses don't have kitchens. Oh my gosh. And he, I
0: think, has as many struggles with eating problems as as Barbies have been accused of. I mean, I, I think that Emily Blunt said that Killian Murphy ate one almond a day or something to get into like his Oppenheimer wardrobe.
1: Oh my God. I had, I don't know what the algorithm was trying to do to me, but there, I was getting a lot of Killian Murphy thin-spo posts. It's back. It's happening again.
0: Oh no. Do you think these are more
1: geared towards little younger men or younger women? I still think younger women, interestingly, but I was, yeah. First, I don't, I don't know what I did on the website, to make this happen. But I was getting a lot of tweets on my feed about Killian Murphy's snatched waste from Thinspo accounts. And I was like, I feel 14 years old again. (laughs) Except now it's J. Robert Oppenheimer whose body goals. It's not fair. (laughs) It never stops. It'll never end. Oh, my God. I kind
0: of want to wake up J. Robert Oppenheimer from his grave and say, do you know what else is happening? You are now giving
1: people... Eating disorders. young women eating disorders somehow. Like, do it on incognito mode. But if you search Oppenheimer snatched waste, you're in for a world of hurt. There's a lot. I mean, the overlap then, I think, is
0: actually pretty interesting. I mean, just to jump back for like one second, there's this book from like 2009 called Toy Monster, The Big Bad World of Mattel. And that book gets really into the connections between like Barbie and weapons of mass destruction. Like there's a chapter called from weapons of mass destruction to Barbie. And it's basically about how one of the foundational members of Mattel, the one who kind of came in the third, basically to the handler family Mm -hmm. uh, was this guy named Jack Ryan who had um, Raytheon (sighs) security clearance during like the Eisenhower administration. Like he worked on missiles. He did like the Hawk missile. And so he was like, at that time of Oppenheimer getting his security clearances revoked. Like, he had security clearance and he was making weapons. And then he meets, like, Ruth Handler. Then he joins Mattel. He is the guy who is, like, specifically credited with filing the nipples off the original Barbie. Or, like, because they, like, you know, they borrowed her mold from, like, the Lily doll, the kind of German sexy doll. So yeah. it is sort of like we stole secrets from Germany, took this explosive doll here.
1: He's the guy who filed off the nipples. Even the phrase filing off the nipples, it's <gasps> so... You can feel it in your whole body.
0: But apparently there was like all of this like German American tension over like the popularity of Barbie and Barbie's roots as being basically stolen from a model of a doll that Ruth Handler saw when she was traveling in Europe. And like. When when somebody else saw that Barbie was popular, they tried to buy the Lily trademark specifically and sell the dolls in America. And so there were huge, like, fights over here. They were suing each other left and right, being like, we know you saw the doll. We can look at the hip joint. And then Mattel buys a doll factory in West Germany. <gasps> the name of the town was Barbenhausen. And Stop. so they were making Barbie dolls in a town that they nicknamed Barbiehausen. So this... This is, this is legacy, man. There's legacy here.
1: That is so high-level business bitchery. <laughs> That's so yeah. petty. Wow. wow. Like, when you read about
0: this stretch of Mattel history, it's crazy. It's all paranoia and, like, industrial espionage. They say that mm-hmm. the Mattel factory had, like, tighter security around it than the aerospace industry. And that it's all full of basically, like, the men we see in Oppenheimer, like, at Mattel. They're like cocky, right. angry, obnoxious. Everybody's having sex with everybody in the company. Like Jack Ryan, this guy, when he got more money, he would take all his girlfriends to get plastic surgery to look more like Barbie. He winds up marrying Zsa Zsa Gabor as like one of his five wives.
1: That's so uh, bleak. <laughs> so, but I, I honestly, I hadn't even connected that. Yeah, like the Oppenheimer like storyline sort of, I think, think would sort of like go cleanly into like the Barbie debut. Um, like we're not because Barbie debuts in like 1959, I think. Um, You're right. So not too far off. Who do you think thinks more about death? Is it Barbie or Oppenheimer? Ooh, I think they both think about death a lot, but Barbie thinks about it more cogently. And is better equipped to handle the concept.
0: I I mean, I think I would agree with you, especially during like that course of what we're seeing in the films, because to me, like so much of, you know, Christopher Nolan, like not really showing the bomb, not really showing the effects was to kind of mirror what Oppenheimer was closing his eyes to as well. Mm -hmm. And to be like, he had to keep things out of mind to make this bomb. He couldn't think about death. And in a way, it's sort of like Barbie being like, I would give anything not to think about death. Like they're kind of coming from, I think, a similar impulse.
1: I don't know. I guess that Barbie does confront it a little more head on than we see Oppenheimer, at least in the space of that movie. Because I've seen Oppenheimer twice now. And I think I don't see myself going to see it a third time. (laughs) with all due respect to Killian Murphy and his snatched waist. I'm sorry. Okay, wait. I have this tweet in front of me cuz I went back to make sure that I was using the correct phrase. It's a picture of Killian Murphy as Oppenheimer and the text is Masters in Cantology, double majored in Slazian Studies and Slutsical Analysis, minored in Baby Girlism from the University of Servington and all the replies are like snatched waist. <laughs> snatched waist. <laughs> So, everyone's doing great. I guess the first time I I saw Oppenheimer, I was pretty baffled by what is shown and what isn't. And then I did a lot of reading... Before I went back the second time and now I feel like I understand more, but I still hesitate to be like, I've totally turned on how I feel about it. I don't know. How do you feel? I actually feel like
0: I'm half a step behind you in that path because, Mm -hmm. you know, I like to make a, a point when I see a movie that's about something real or based on a book, honestly. I see the movie completely blank as I can. And then I go back and I like read the book and I read the source material and I read more about it to kind of fill in things because I want to know what the movie tells me without having to infer stuff on my own. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of deliberately like didn't read American Prometheus before I saw Oppenheimer because I wanted to be like, what is this movie going to tell me and how is it going to affect me about it? Which made me feel as I watched it, like, I feel really stupid. I'm not understanding a lot of this. Like, what is happening? And then in reading it now, I'm kind of like, I do want to see it again to see what if it changes for me on the second watch. But part of me is like, maybe I don't think he told the story exactly the way that it would be affecting all of the stuff about Oppenheimer that structures it, you know, him trying to get his security clearance. And then like this battle that Robert Downey Jr. is having to get to be like, you know, the, what is it? Board of Commissioner, what's our proper name? Commissioner of, Secretary of Commerce, something like that. Secretary of Commerce. I don't yeah. even know what a Secretary of Commerce exactly does. And that's a failing on me in, like, the American school system. But, like, there's so much of that, and it's presented as equally life and death as everything else. And honestly, I thought, I'm just stupid because I don't understand what this means. And, like, yeah. I don't understand... That, like, you know, for Oppenheimer, losing his security clearance means, like, he can never go back to, like, the land of New Mexico where he loved and he's not allowed to, like, revisit the territory that, like, really felt special to him and that he chose with his brother. And then, like, and it also means, like, his kind of maybe humiliation and, like, being discredited in front of people. And then Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, you're just adding also maybe a lot of emotional resonance that's maybe not in the film. And maybe the film didn't make me feel that. And maybe it's okay to be like, no, and I didn't feel it. I understand you yeah. intellectually, but I'm doing a lot of work here that I don't feel like you put into the movie.
1: I'm glad you feel that way. Yeah, I, I also didn't... I don't know. It's like we're both <laughs> products of the American schooling system. And there are very few like creators of anything that I find myself wishing that they thought I am dumber. But it's not unusual for me to feel that way watching a Christopher Nolan movie. I'm like, thank you for thinking that I would have a lot of background in understand because it feels like there's just like an assumption that I, as a viewer, know what is going on in the background. And I guess that if everyone had a thorough knowledge of what he's not showing, then it's more of a creative choice that I like. But it's like, realistically, I don't really know what I am not seeing outside of obviously like the biggest thing is like Japan. I, I've read a fair amount of stuff on it at this point, And I feel like I understand how each opinion falls. Like, so I knew that was missing, but there were so many things in the middle that I had no idea were missing that I'm like, did Christopher Nolan think that most people know that or not? And I just like, I'm not clear on that. And I don't know how much it matters, but it feels like it matters. Yeah,
0: it feels like we're supposed to really care about whether or not Robert Downey Jr. makes this confirmation appointment. And for the life of me, I couldn't feel a reason to care that the movie was giving me. If there's a thing in here that I think he's exploring, it's basically, I think, the same question he's exploring in The Dark Knight. You know, that you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain. Mm -hmm. You know, in Oppenheimer living long enough to see himself become the villain. And he, I mean, there's even a version of that speech that we get in this movie from Albert Einstein. And I like that speech and I like it when Albert Einstein gives it. And I'm like, yeah, I believe it. And and honestly, that feels really real to me because I think that's kind of true for basically everybody. Like only Angela Lansbury lived long enough to not be canceled.
1: Like, good for her, she made it. And everybody else were kind of like on borrowed time. Set it, yeah, setting the bar um, <laughs> impossibly high for the rest of the world. And maybe something will come out. It's not too late. Yeah. Um, I heard that get, get her, her ass. Kittens. No. Yeah. <laughs> um I feel like it, it was a pretty wide age spread both times I saw it. And kids love when Albert Einstein pops up when he's behind the car. I laugh every single time, like <laughs> boop. Like, he's so it feels like they put and I know that like I was sort of like, why is that funny? There's so many real people in this movie. Why is it funny that Albert Einstein is there? And I feel like it's just because he's like, I don't even really think of him as a person. I think of him as like a guy on a magnet, kind of like a cartoon character, like Albert Einstein, Spongebob, etc. Like, he's kind of SpongeBobian to me. And so it's so wild that he's in the movie behind a car dispensing the message of the movie. I just think it's so funny anytime he's in the movie his hat blows off and you're like this goofy guy what is spongebob doing here like i just i think that (laughs) those are my favorite parts of the movie because it's just like I don't think it's supposed to be funny but it's funny because also I feel like that kind of plays into what we're talking about like I had no fucking clue that Albert Einstein was even alive during World War II if I'm being honest I had no fucking idea like this is something that I think Christopher Nolan thought I knew but I don't and and there he is and and isn't that interesting but that's like a lower stakes version of assuming that the audience knows something
0: <laughs> no but you're right like Albert Einstein makes me wonder if other scientists in a post-Albert Einstein world were like, what's going to be my gimmick? Like, how are people going to be able to do a little doodle of me and make me recognizable? You know, how am I going to get that fame? He seems like he has been dead so long that I'm always astonished when you see footage of them actually being alive. The way that, like, Charlie Chaplin lived much longer than I thought he did, you know? And, like, you, you get older and you're like, whoa, at the 1970 Oscars, like, all of these people I just assumed only ever lived in a black and white world were there. The merging of history in the middle of the 20th century, I find really fascinating because it's like kind of taught to us as like dead or newly dead. They feel like of different generations. And it's interesting, like the way that he, I think Nolan even builds out these characters, you know. I thought Einstein seemed kind of cuddly and yeah. but maybe that's just the hair. Maybe it's just like all of the Einstein imagery I'm putting on top of Einstein. Sweat
1: He's wearing Yay! sweats. What was You're he doing? He's like, like feeding the ducks guy. or
0: something, looking at nature.
1: He's like, I don't really want anything to do with the atomic bomb, but go off. is <laughs> sort of his, uh, yeah. his feeling.
0: Please don't blow up the atmosphere, which was a whole new horror that I never had thought they were worried about. Yeah. Please don't blow up the entire planet with like a, Combustible, like flames in the sky. But, like, the way that Nolan introduces Oppenheimer to us, I was very on board because he's like, Oppenheimer, he's a guy who, when he gets mad, he's going to poison his teacher's apple with cyanide. Uh, he's right. reckless. He can't be held down. And I was like, oh, I'm very excited to watch a movie about a guy who's like this volatile. Mm-hmm. And then it sort of felt like from there, He's almost more like Bruce Banner-ish. He's like, I'm a guy who could be so volatile that I'm actually not volatile. You know, he, he felt so contained uh, mm-hmm. to me throughout the rest of the movie where it was like only because of the Apple scene did I even guess that maybe he could have the potential of like doing a lot of harm to people when he gets mad. But it was strange. I just felt like everybody in the movie was talking about this character – that I wasn't seeing, you know, Oppenheimer, he's like a bad boy. Oh, he's dangerous. Oh, you never know. He's an egomaniac. And I'm like, he's a womanizer. And you're just womanizer.
1: wasn't really seeing that. I wasn't seeing it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'm seeing the suppression of it. If I'm being very charitable
1: or I'm just not seeing it at all. Christopher Nolan writing women is just kind of like camp media to me at this point. I'm like, I can't, I can't get mad about it. It's like, what did I expect? I knew that it was going to be weird and like even if they're raw fucking mysteriously sexless uh anytime (laughs) like that she like I don't know what I expected I I didn't have the the wherewithal to get upset about it but one thing he's amazing at is showing you stuff but yeah it did feel like it was sort of at odds with who he is versus I don't know and then the the thing this is another sequence that made me laugh both times I saw it where uh, the second time I saw it with my boyfriend and it's this the sequence where he's like Becoming inspired, and he's going to museums and he's reading The Wasteland. And there's like, um, you know, the music is really swelling. And I'm like, oh, he's opping. He's opping <laughs> so hard. He's starting to op. And then at the end, he like figures out science or whatever. And like, you can't tell me that Christopher Nolan doesn't think this guy fucking rules. Like, that <laughs> sequence alone, he's like, he's opping so hard in this one. <laughs> like, I had a hard time with this movie because I wouldn't say that I disliked it, but there were so many parts of it that it, I just was like, "Did I miss something?" Yeah, I feel really similar. Like I'm happy that this
0: movie is alive in the ecosystem, and I love that Barbenheimer became a thing. And I totally bought yeah. a shirt, and <laughs> and I'm excited to see it again. And I'm going to, I think, when I see it the second time, I'm going to try to see it through a lens of watch this as a movie that's only about withholding, because mm-hmm. to me, that was just like the feeling I walked away with is like. Here's a guy who's suppressing all of his emotions. Here's a movie that's withholding why any of these long ass conversations in beige rooms about communism matter. Here's a movie that's like withholding even the Nolan that I think of as Nolan. You know, I think of Nolan as a guy who can make any office building look extraordinary. And here Mm -hmm. he's like, I'm not. He's like, it's like he's really saying you're not getting what you expect from me. I am taking away everything Nolan and I'll give it to you in these like random little bursts. Here's a crazy montage and like, here's Florence Pugh naked, which is just like, it's more human than anything I've ever seen him do in like 20 years. (laughs) Like a woman who sweats, what are you talking about? And like (laughs) only giving himself this Nolan to us so sporadically that I'm like, you have an intention and I'm not sure I'm getting it. So I need to Mm -hmm. see it again and try to like open my heart as wide as I can as wide as possible to whatever I think you're doing. But right now I just am only interested in the movie intellectually and not like emotionally on any sort of a level. Yeah.
1: I I guess this did work. If there was any part of the intent was like that I left that movie wanting to know what I was missing. I think because not seeing anything in Hiroshima or Nagasaki felt like that, you know, is something that is being intentionally withheld from you. And so when I left, I was like, okay, I for sure didn't know a lot of what was going on, what was actually going on. And then I did read more about it and learned more about it. And there is there is something to that because it's not like Christopher Nolan's job or responsibility to tell me what happens in World War II. That's not his job. But how many movies are tackling this very specific, tackling something so specific and not letting you know anything outside of it? It's such a, like, intense choice to have made. I don't think it's something that I would have ever done myself because I I think I'm just pathologically afraid of people being mad at me. Uh, but um, I still feel like I'm missing something. But I want to know what I'm missing. It's not like, I'm not mad at it. I just want to know what I'm missing.
0: It's fair. Yeah. Like... like- I like that he respects the audience enough that he is not like, I will spoon feed everything to you, that it's not like some sort of yeah. 90s version of an Oscar movie about this or something like it. Right. It's not pandering. And I no. respect that. And I mean, it made me think about, you know, a lot of the writing I've, I've read on like atomic warfare in the past beyond this. Like I always think about, I think it was Kurt Vonnegut maybe who wrote that to him the true definition of evil in America is not Hiroshima. It's Nagasaki. Because Nagasaki is when we knew exactly what was going to happen and we waited Mm -hmm. three days and did it again without even giving people a chance to, like, reconsider. We were just like, you know, we just did it straight up again,
1: knowing what would happen. I don't know. I know that there's been a shitload written about the the last hour of this movie. And even if he's withholding images I don't I I think I would have liked to see Oppenheimer who we've seen opping for two hours now like I just like I don't know struggle with it more struggle with it differently or like struggle with it with more specificity because like even like what you just described I feel like that's referenced maybe in passing but not like I feel like there's a whole like world of examining like how do you process being integral to that happening that they sort that I feel like the movie kind of backs away from in favor of the Robert Downey Jr. stuff which I didn't super care about it I thought it was funny when they said John F. Kennedy like he was um, Thanos or something that was nice but outside of that that whole thing I was like yeah power corrupts and Robert Downey jr plays a huge bitch in this movie fine but like i i I, I think I, w- I wanted to see you know Oppenheimer's struggle with the morality of what had happened more because that it was there but then it was gone and then I feel like the Robert Downey jr Thing fucking him over ends up making him out to be pretty sympathetic towards the end of like this guy. He got pretty fucked over, and you're like, well, but that sh- is that the first thing <laughs> to think about with him? I I don't know. I I I did kind of struggle with where it landed. Yeah, you're right. Like I think the balance of
0: the whole Downey Jr. of it all kind of takes over.
1: It takes the place of even the
0: people I'd kind of want to know a little bit more about. You know, like the Benny Safety character who plays like. Edward Teller, the scientist who uses so much sunscreen, good for him, Um, but also, (laughs) you know, is the person who, like, I guess testifies against him and sort of just we don't really feel a lot of the arc of, like, why he's doing that. And then the arc of, like, them sort of looking at each other in the White House again like it was you, Fredo, or whatever. And, (laughs) and, And that turn, you know, to be a person who worked with him so closely and to turn on him sounds oh to me more interesting than a lot of the Downey Jr. stuff that I feel like I could have just whittled that down, man.
1: Yeah. There are a bunch of characters that we meet in passing that I was more interested in than the characters of the movie sort of decides to focus on. Um, I felt kind of bad. I mean, I, this will be the last thing I say about Christopher Nolan and women. I just, it's, 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 a, it's a useless battle. Uh, but I did feel... <laughs> bad for like i know that kitty oppenheimer was an alcoholic in real life but every scene she's in if she is not actually drinking there is like glug glug mp3 coming from her bag like you can't this woman cannot be in a single scene without christopher nolan being like and she's got a drinking problem you're like and she's a bad
0: mommy she's a bad bad mommy
1: yeah, yeah, and it's but it's it's okay because her husband's a genius, whatever. Yeah, I I, I would have loved more of the Benny Safty character. I really, um, where is she? She's way down there. I loved this. Is just like a personal horny observation. I loved how David Crumholtz looked like Alfred Molina. It was <laughs> that was awesome. I just um, and then there was. One, uh, Olivia Thirlby. I was like, Juno's best friend, Juno's best friend. Like, I, that was someone that I looked up afterwards um, because I was like, oh, there was uh, one woman there, question mark, and she got three lines of dialogue. That's just a Christopher Nolan movie, fine. But that, that was also a real person. And, like, when I read more about her, I'm like, that's a way more interesting character to be than Robert Downey Jr. Like, I, I'm I wonder how much of that is American Prometheus because... I haven't read it, and I don't see it happening. And I was just glad to see
0: Nolan know to cast
1: her because yeah. I've always really liked her.
0: I always get her and, like, Kat Dennings united in my brain as, like, these two women that I was really waiting to just blow up, and I felt like you didn't quite get the roles, you know? Mm-hmm. And But, like, you were there, and I, like, really was just rooting for them both so hard. Yeah. But They're it's, like, to me great. kind of frustrating that Nolan is, like, yes, I will command great actresses. I will command Florence Pugh. She will be in my film and she will just be mean and sexy. And then, then that's it. And yeah, it's I'll give like, her
1: nothing to do. I was just like, nothing. man, maybe hey, Florence Pugh. There, I, <laughs> with both like Florence Pugh and Emily Blunt, I'm like, would you have been happier in the Barbie movie? Not that there's only two movies you could be in, but would you have been happier in the Barbie movie? I wonder. <laughs> I I definitely wonder.
0: I mean, I feel yeah. like... Emily Blunt's last real scene where she gets to rage out at the committee is so good that I think it's possible that it kind of will wind up rewriting how badly written her character is the whole rest of the way. And then she'll probably get an Oscar nomination to which I'm like, you put in the work. It's not your fault. The character sucks. But you really only had one good scene. She's so good in that
1: scene, though. I was like, man, we could have let her do that the whole damn time. Couldn't we have?
0: Let me just ask kind of one more question as we're sort of tying things up together. Mm-hmm. Hearing you talk about like that Oppenheimer arc of like, you did bad things, but oh, now we're forgiving you and everything will be all right. It made me think a little bit of like the arc we go on for the Kens and how the emotional roller coaster yes. of the Kens. Because to me, with the Kens, the moment of Barbie that I really respect and I keep coming back to is always when they're kind of reallocating the power of Barbie world. And like, mm-hmm. Barbie world is not perfect. Barbie makes a point to leave Barbie world at the end. Barbie world is not like the end-all be-all. But the Kens are like, what's going to happen to us? Can we be judges? And they're like, no. And I'm always like, oh, the poor Kens. And then they're like, you can have as much power as real women do. And I'm like, god damn it. Why do I always get tricked
1: into like over-empathizing with a Ken? Yeah, I definitely felt that as well. I'm like, how much of that is just like... The Kens are super fun to watch, but I feel like they're more fun to watch because they get to do more fun stuff than the Barbies. I don't know. I'm just like, how could you not let Issa Rae and Kate McKinnon sing a song together? Like, I had all these drafts of songs I wanted Barbies to sing by the third time I saw it. And every time there'd be a new combo of Barbies, you're like, well, there is a song. uh, Anyways, but it feels like the forgiveness, even from Barbie, comes in a way that isn't really earned but he's fun so it's easy to take in but barbie was way more ken heavy than i thought it would be and i love i like when he's discovering patriarchy in century city like that sequence is amazing but like <laughs> objectively he comes back to barbie land overthrows the government and steals her house and she still apologizes to him at the end of the movie for and I'm not like, wanting to date him right and being like you're right I should have hung out with my friends less and then I, I don't think it was like intentional or like world shaking or anything like that but it just felt like well maybe Ken wouldn't have done that if Barbie was a little bit nicer to him and he stole her house like she doesn't need to say sorry to him I understand like from the perspective of like he felt ostracized and left out um but it, yeah, it felt like the the Ken forgiveness arc, I don't know. I'd like if I'm taking off my like analysis goggles, I'm like it is funny, but um, that felt kind of funky to me that like we have to forgive Ken before the movie can end. And it's progressive because Barbie doesn't want to date him, but she still has to forgive him for some reason. I still want to know where the Kens live.
0: Where do they I don't go? <laughs> I don't do they, they just lie on the beach? The, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's still real canon Ken, Ken equality. But yeah, I am glad it doesn't end there. And it kind of ends where it does. You know, like, to me, the part where I always cry is like Barbie in the absolute white void of space deciding to become a human. Because that is just something... That in all of my, like, complicated years of looking at Barbie and being like, why can't I have hot dog legs? It never <laughs> occurred to me that sh- that a doll would be like, why can't I be a human? You know, mm-hmm. like, in that way. In, like, the way of not just, like, humanity is great, but, like, humanity is really troubled and it's hard. And I choose the hardness of it.
1: Mm-hmm. And I
0: find choosing hardness to be, like, one of the most beautiful things the characters can do in a movie. Like, it's the... Eternal sunshine ending like this is going to be a really horrible relationship and it's going to be difficult, but I choose you anyways. That's the stuff where I'm like, oh, it reflects my view of the world, which is probably kind of dark. But her choosing us, like choosing choosing to honor what being a real woman is, is so affecting to me. And like seeing her start to go on that journey from when she sees Anne Roth, the costume designer, kind of sitting at the bus stop and looking at human wrinkles and being like, those are beautiful. It ends and and Roth's character being like I know like
1: it's so good
0: <laughs> that's the magic trick of the movie like you you took me to the honoring the mortal soul
1: I cannot put it anywhere close to that good yeah it's I mean the, it's a really beautiful movie and I'm sure sh- and it again it feels like amazing that that is allowed to happen and I'm like maybe I'm being completely tricked by being like no Barbie is nice and she wants to be your friend but you're like well why not I don't know so much of whatever it's an infinity conversation but to some extent it's like Barbie gets treated how like people who are branded as real life like bimbos in real life are treated and that's never fair so I just was like how did Barbie get health insurance and can she hook me up (laughs) Oh, she can see that she's going to see a dentist next. She's seeing see a, a Century dentist. City gynecologist. Like she, America Ferrera <laughs> hooked her up. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if she gets insurance through Mattel. That's something that I ended up really liking about the movie where it's like there are just like some leaps of logic that like you're like, yeah, if you think about this for more than a second, it makes no fucking sense. But like that's not the point it's it's fun. everyone's suddenly wearing roller skates. Sure that, that's just how the movie works And Barbie has a human vagina. Don't think about how it got there. like it's, it just happened <laughs> 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 um, I don't know. I'll probably see it a fourth time. I'll probably have the same exact problems as I do now but I really like how I feel watching it.
0: I agree. I want to take us out on maybe kind of a weird note, but it does tie us back into the Kenness of it all. Maybe part of like the sexual non-tension between Barbie and Ken does come from the fact that they are named after Ruth Handler's kids, that they're sort of siblings in a way, mm-hmm. you know, that she had a son named Ken and a daughter named Barbara. Mm-hmm. But the, the son named Ken actually, you know, lived mostly off the Mattel money because, of course, he got like, you know, some profits from Ken being named after him, giving up Barbie. his life to being Ken. And it sounds like for both Barbie and Ken, mm-hmm. it was a bit of a curse and they really hated talking about it. But like the real Ken. Just like
1: the cast of the Blair Witch Project.
0: Oh, I know. And Heather Donahue was like the greatest actress.
1: I know. Oh. I was just thinking about them the other day. Anyways, They're so
0: good. But um, (laughs) Ken actually grew up to get it together to direct his own movie. So real life Ken made a movie in the 80s. I'm going to show some of the trailer. I want to warn you, it's like semi-softcore 80s comedy, the way like pretty much all early 80s comedies were. It's called mm-hmm. Delivery Boys, and it is about men who deliver things to people in New York, and then like fall into all sorts of sexual harassment situations.
1: New York City, famous for its culture, <laughs> its street life, its nightlife, and its delivery boys. The sun down yeah. Uh, well, that'll be twelve dollars and. <laughs> <in the hundred laughs> Delivery Boys, it's an art, it's a science, it's service, lots of service.
0: Oh. <laughs> what we have here is a failure to
1: communicate. See them in action <laughs> in the comedy that fares all. <laughs> About why deliveries take so long.
0: How are you going to keep me against my will? I won't. In fact, the door won't even
1: be locked. Delivery boys Oh my god Come and get them While they're hot <laughs> Delivery, boys. Boy, Delivery they deliver. boys Boy do they deliver Oh and they had Their own song written by Ken <gasps> Ken wrote the song In defense of nepotism Delivery <laughs> boys 1985
0: Wow I want to see that Yeah in defense of nepotism, Mario Van Peebles is at one point dressed like a Barbie with a gigantic blonde wig.
1: What an interesting way to, like, to figure out your generational Barbie trauma. Ooh, <laughs> that rules. Good for Ken. Good for Ken,
0: man. He he made his art. I think that that movie is probably being shown in a mojo dojo.
1: I, I also really love... What is it? It's like long-distance, low-commitment, uh, <laughs> casual girlfriend. That was, I was like, damn, they, they're good.
0: Oh, Jamie, I know that you're across the country. Will you be my long-distance, low-commitment, casual podcast buddy? Yes. It's like that title oh. means nothing anymore. <laughs> <laughs> oh. No, no, for real. I want to thank you so much for coming on to just talk about all things Barbenheimer Last question. Did you eat a hot dog at the movie theater while Barbara and the
1: <sighs> I did. I ate a hot dog at Oppenheimer. Um, and then when I saw Barbie the third time in Maine this week, we pre by going to a nearby hot dog bar. And that was an incredible and thoughtful way to start the night. You know, Ken has a bulge, but at least you've got the wieners. I've got, I'm in full control of the wieners. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
0: Jamie, thank you again. This has been so fun.
1: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
0: I want to say thanks again to Jamie for coming on the show. (gasps) I just adore her. I adore her. Next week, Paul will be back. And I am very excited because I think that Paul and I should talk about something springboarding off of something I heard when I went to go see Barbie for the second time at an AMC randomly in the middle of California, which is... There was a whole line of girls there dressed in pink, having this session about what they had just seen of Barbie. And one of them said something that really stuck with me. She said, I haven't had a moment like this in the theater. I haven't had a time where I saw a film that made me feel so seen since Legally Blonde. And I thought, whoa, it has been a long time since Legally Blonde. And whoa, that makes me want to go back and rewatch Legally Blonde. So you know what? Paul's not here, and I'm just going to command it. We're going to do Legally Blonde when he gets back next week, and I am very excited about that. So here's the trailer of Legally Blonde, and as you can guess, you can watch it pretty much anywhere on this given earth. I'm going to Harvard Law School. On this day, in my way. Do
1: you have a resume? It's pink. I think it gives it a little something extra, don't you think? When nothing can go wrong. I object. I'm This summer, Reese Witherspoon is... Elle Wood, attorney. Legally blonde, Rated PG-13. A big thank you to our producer, Josh Richmond, our associate producer, Jessica Cisneros, our engineer, Casey Holford, and our executive producers, Cody Fisher and Amelia Chapello, and our MVP... Molly Reynolds, our theme song is by Michael Cassidy and our fan art is by Kim Troxell. Follow Unspooled on Twitter and Instagram and join in the conversation about all things Unspooled on the Paul Shear Discord at discordgg shear Unspooled t-shirts are available at tpublic.com/unspooled and you can get a deck of Unspooled playing cards and more merch at podswag.com. Finally, See the official API list of Unspooled Films and more about the show at unspooledpod.com.